invite you, if you have your Bible with you, to pull it out or get your device or phone out and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're in Psalm 131 this morning. Over the course of the summer, we have been uh, in a series called Tunes for the Trail, Psalms that Take You Higher. And we are looking at a specific segment of Psalms. It's called the Psalms of Ascent. And each of the Psalms um, were said to be sung as people would leave their hometowns and journey to Jerusalem for the three uh, annual major worship festivals. And as they would proceed on their journey, literally going up to Jerusalem, uh, they would recite these psalms along the way. And throughout the history of the church, uh, the, the people of God, we've kind of looked at these as um, opportunities to learn how to get over some of the obstacles that we have in our walk of discipleship. You know, in following Jesus on this narrow path, sometimes it gets uh, difficult. There's bumps in the road, there's rocks in the trail, there's things that we have to step over, go around, figure out a way through, and as we have been going through these psalms, we have come along some things, and today um, we get to one that is, I think it's one of the major obstacles that gets in our way uh, and prevents us from moving forward in spiritual growth, uh, and that's called the word pride. Our pride gets in the way of a whole bunch of stuff. It's this huge obstacle in front of us. Another way we might look at pride is, uh, we could call it overreaching ambition, or, um, you know, the aspirations that we have as, as individuals. It all stems out of, of pride, out of uh, selfishness, and our need and desire sometimes to control the world around us, to control the people around us. Uh, we just have this uh, need deep down in the human spirit to be in charge, that uh, we like to make whatever it is that we are involved in, we like to make it about us. That's deep within us, and that's a huge barrier and obstacle for us as we ascend the trail towards Jerusalem. And today's psalm uh, kind of goes after that a little bit. See, our, we live in a culture that rewards ambition. I mean, look out into the world, the focus is on who's number one. Whoever, whatever is on top, that's what we are supposed to align ourselves with. If this is number one, we have to change all our strategy so that we can become like this person because they have reached the pinnacle of success. They have uh, become number one, and so you, you see it out in corporate America. When, when one company gets the edge over another, uh, oftentimes the other companies who are trying to figure out, well, how do we sell the most? How do we you know, have the top ranked whatever? They will change corporate strategies to try and mirror this other company so that they can maybe surpass them and overtake them. It's all, it all stems from pride. And, and I got to say that the world sets pride up as a virtue. And we talked in the Deadly Sin series a few months ago that pride is one of the deadly sins, yet our world looks at pride as the virtue and humility as the weakness. And in, uh, in the faith... Christian faith, it's the other way around. Pride is the deadly sin, and humility 
is the virtue that we're working on. Um, but it begs the question, and each week we've been trying to set a question out on the table for us to kind of focus our discussion around. The, the question is, is the pursuit of greatness a bad thing? Because sometimes in Christian circles, we, it seems like we have to flush ambition, flush high aspirations, flush goals all down the toilet, and that they are meaningless and unimportant. So the question, I think we could say, is, is the pursuit of greatness a bad thing? Is ambition something that Christians need to throw on the trash heap and forget about? How, how do I pursue greatness yet maintain a spirit of humility? Or maybe, maybe the way to put the question is, how, how do I maintain a balance between humility and ambition? And that's really what I hope to focus our talk on this morning. So would you stand as we get some wisdom uh, from our brother David? Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel. Put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. It's the word of the Lord. We say, thanks be to God. You can be seated. That was only three verses. That's a short little psalm that we have there. But I think David paints a deeply moving picture of the contentment that we can find uh, in being humble and by trusting in the Lord. Now, if you look closely at the psalm, the, the psalm does not actually use the word humility in it. But in many circles, this psalm, this particular, these three verses are described as an ode to hum humility. Um, we have a couple idioms in the English language that involve humility and, and being humble. Um, you may have heard some of these. Welcome to my humble abode. Have you heard that one? Or, in my humble opinion, you've heard that one. Um, how about, uh, I had to eat humble pie? Have you heard that one? Sometimes we hear it as, I had to eat crow. And, 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 and that one is, you know, that's eating humble pie is taking back or eating words after you've gone out on a limb and said, I am right about this. And it turns out the other person is right. And then you have to eat your words, and it's called humble pie, swallowing your pride. Well, do you know what this is? You know what it is? It looks like a dish, right? Small dish, bowl. It's actually called a ramekin. Now, at one point in my life, I did not know what a ramekin is. And Lisa and I were out to dinner with a pretty big group, the whole staff from the church that we were at, and we were having dessert, and it was served in one of these. And Lisa said, this is a ramekin. And I had never even heard that word before in my life. And I said, you're just making that up. 
I think I said a whole lot more than that. And uh, so, you know, I was maybe a little bit, okay, I was very smart alecky about my response, and that's not a, how do you know that that is a ramekin? It's a small dish that has ice cream or creme brulee in it or whatever it was. She said, no, it, the technical word for this is a ramekin. I said, well, how do you spell that? She was right, by the way. And so I had to eat some humble pie, but it was not served in a ramekin, I tell you that. <laughs> Once in a while, you know, we just have to eat our words and admit when we're wrong. I mean, but that's pride that gets in the way. We build ourselves up, we think we're right, and then, oh, nope, we're wrong. It only happens a couple times in my existence. <laughs> yeah, right. <clears throat> anyway, the Bible talks about being humble a lot. And there, there's something in the text that we read today that can help us in our journey to trying to understand what it means to be humble, what it means to have a spirit of humility. Uh, getting over our pride is a really difficult thing to do, but it's essential for us to live as Christians. But then we have to ask the question, well, what does it actually mean to be humble? I mean, the common perception of humility is that meekness equals weakness, or that humility equals humiliation. We, we think that we have to be a, a doormat, or, you know, people that uh, other people just walk all over, that we can't have a spine or a backbone or an opinion or an ambition or anything. And, and so uh, sometimes we just have the wrong definition that's put on us from the world of what it means to, to live in humility. To, to be humble people. And so what I want to do today is just look really closely at, at Psalm 131. There, there's three verses in it. And I want to go verse by verse through this particular song, be, psalm because I think that there is a, there's a really good and accurate definition, uh, one that is very usable for us, um, of what it means to be humble. And I think that it challenges us to try the concept, and I think that it tells us uh, how to attain um, being humble, and how do we maintain humility um, once we move along that path? So keep your Bibles out. We're going to be in Psalm 131, um, the first verse. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. First of all, the first thing that we need to note is that Humility focuses our attention on God. I mean, David wrote this psalm, and he uses his, himself as an example. He gives something to us out of his own life experience. He, he opens up his own past, his own journey, and his prayer is to God. The, his, his writing isn't necessarily uh, for us to come across as some kind of a tutorial. Um, his prayer is directly to God, from David's lips to God's ear. And we have the privilege of being able to overhear and look in on it. It's a conversation that he has with God, not necessarily with us. Humility, then, is first and, and foremost an attitude that is completely focused on God. It, it is focusing, focusing our prayers on, on who God is and, and what he wants for us, what he wants for 
this world, what he wants for your family, what he wants for your small group, what he wants for your workplace, what he wants for your personal life. All of those things have a focus that is first and foremost on God. Humility focuses on God. But humility is also maintaining a balance. Uh, humility is, is defined by maintaining a sense of being level, a, a sense of being balanced. If you can picture in your minds for a moment uh, the old balance scales, you know, they had the, the column in the middle, and then there's the big beam, and then from the beam there's two chains that go down, and there's little pans. And if you have, uh, you know, five pounds of something on one side, and you want to measure out carrots, five pounds of carrots, then you put the carrots over here, and, and it becomes level. And so think in your mind about, about humility as being kind of like this level, this balance. If it's, if it's tipped one direction, you're out of balance. Tip the other direction, you're still out of balance. So humility is maintaining a balance. And David really talks about three ways, three things that need to remain in balance for us to live a life of humility. The, the first thing, he says, to have a balanced heart. Did you see that? He says, my heart is not proud. If you look at the Hebrew language there, when he says, my heart is not proud, he's saying, my heart is not lifted up. My heart is not high. When, when we talk about the heart in, in the Bible times, they're not just talking about the organ in the body that pumps blood to all the parts of our body. When we talk about heart in the Bible, we're talking about all of who we are, our thinking, our feeling, our desires, the seat of our emotions. When we talk about the heart in the Bible, we're, we're talking about the whole person. And so what David is saying here is that my heart is not proud. If my heart was lifted up, then that would be out of balance, right? He says my heart is not lifted up. So we need to have a balanced heart. If you have a proud heart, you lose your balance. You're not level. But it's also a proud heart is out of balance. But also, if you go the other direction, you're also out of balance if you think too little of yourself. On the one hand, a proud heart is thinking too much of yourself. And if, the, if you're out of balance the other way, it's thinking too little of yourself. And we, we know people like that. We know people who are arrogant. So part of the balance is that we have a balanced heart. Not too high, not too low. But then he talks about his eyes, too. My eyes are not haughty. My eyes are not arrogant. The Hebrew for that arrogant, that haughty, is also gives us the same sense of, of lifted up. My, my eyes are not aimed too high. My focal point isn't, isn't up here nor is it low. Just like the heart, he's just using a different metaphor. One is the heart, the seat of all who we are. The other is his vision, where he's looking. So uh, part of maintaining humility is having a balanced vision. I'm not, I'm not looking too high. I mean, if you look at people in the eye and you, and you talk to people, you can tell who is arrogant and who's not, sometimes just by looking them in the eye. You get glances and looks from people sometimes that make you feel like, wow, I feel like a moron. 
the way that they looked at me. They've, they've elevated themselves over and above me. They've taken a position of arrogance just by the way that they looked at me and how they made me feel. On the other hand, you can go the other way. You can try and make eye contact with some people, and, and, and they won't look you in the eye. They, they always look down, and it's a, it's a sign of, you know, cowering and, and, and being overly humble. And what David says is, my eyes, are not, my eyes are not lifted up. But he's also saying my eyes are not pointed too low either. He's saying we need to maintain a balance. We need to have a balanced vision. With these first two, the heart and with the eyes, there, there are several verses in Proverbs. One that comes to mind is uh, Proverbs 21.4. It says, haughty eyes and a proud heart are the unplowed field of the wicked. They produce sin. And if you think about the field imagery there, if you have a field that's not plowed, it's not level. When you plow a field, you level out the soils and prepare it for planting. And so the, the proverb here is saying, you know, these things are like an unplowed field. It's just all uh, out of balance, out of level. There's lumps and things that, that the plow just needs to come across and level out. But there's one other thing that he says here that I think we need to maintain a balance and a level in, and that is, the third thing is, we have to have balanced goals. Uh, he says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful or marvelous for me. See, David, even though he was a king, he kept his, his goals, his dreams, his desires in a proper perspective. I mean, he really sought after God's heart. He wanted the things of God. He wanted the desires of God to come forth. Uh, he recognized that God was so much greater than himself, and, and his goals and his dreams fell in line with what God would have for him. But he doesn't forsake... See, what he's doing, he's not forsaking his present reality to chase a goal and a dream that's just way out of line with what God might have for him. So if you put these three things together, a balanced heart, having balanced vision, and having balanced goals, what we're saying is that part of the definition of humility is, is allowing ourselves to be shaped by God, allowing God to help us figure out what is balanced, giving it all to Him, allowing Him to guide us, to direct us, to give us his wisdom, to, to let God balance your heart. Let God be the one who balances your vision. Let God be the one who balances your goals. Allow God to help you become who he made you to be, is what humility is, is all about. It's not getting wrapped up in what we want for ourselves. Humility is allowing God to shape us into who he wants us to be. So don't let your eyes, don't let your heart, and don't let your goals throw you off balance and off kilter. Verse 2, when we get to, when we get to verse 2, David says, But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. This, this verse right here is holding up pride on one hand and humility on the other. 
and it's painting a, it's painting a good picture of humility. It, it, it presents humility, humility as something that we would want, that we would desire. I think everybody would like to have a calm, quiet, and contented kind of a life. Are you like me? I, sounds good. So that's the picture of humility that he puts up. Is when, when we're in line with God, we can experience a calm and a quietness in our life, that we can find ourselves contented in all things, like Paul would say. And then he presents uh, a picture of, of pride, on the other hand, that's something that we would despise, something that we wouldn't want. And so he puts it into a framework where it's an easy choice. Yeah, I would like to take the picture of, of humility. When your heart, and, which is your attitude, when, when your eyes and your desires and your goals are in line with God, or the consequence is living contentedly in the center of, of God's will. And the imagery that, that David uses here, I, I just like it a lot. Um, David says he is calmed and quieted and content like a weaned child. I was on an airplane recently, and two rows up, there was a little baby boy who was not weaned yet, by the way. Uh, he... He was not calm. He was definitely not content. And he certainly wasn't quiet. If you think about this verse, David uses the picture in a positive way. A weaned child is calm and quieted and content. That's the picture of humility. He doesn't outright spell it out for us. But if you think about the opposite, then, of humility, which would be a prideful spirit, it's the opposite of calm. It's the opposite of quiet. It's the opposite of content. So if you, if you think about the opposite, humility equals all of these things, then if you think about the opposite, what David is saying is that one who harbors pride in their heart, one who has a prideful spirit is just like a whiny little crybaby. That's what he says, right? And that's what I'm to surmise when I read this text. Humility on the one hand is calm and quiet, and the opposite would be one who elevates themselves, one who is full of themselves and has a prideful spirit. It's just like a whiny little crybaby. People full of pride are like babies who are not yet weaned. They don't get their way, they whine, they cry, they squawk about it. People who are full of pride typically spend their time going after personal desires. What I want, I, I will pursue. And when a person that's full of pride doesn't get their way, it kind of sounds like this. Wah! right? That's what it comes across as when people start complaining about things that they want but they can't have. If you think about your own uh, human development, uh, being weaned was the first time in your development uh, that you were forced to realize that you could desperately want something but not yet have it. And when you didn't get it, your only mechanism to tell people about it was to cry. 
And David is using that word picture for us. If you're not weaned, then you're a crybaby. And he's attaching a prideful spirit with this imagery. Don't blame me. I'm just reading the text here. (laughs) If you harbor prideful attitudes, David says, not in so many words, that that we are like a crybaby. And I think he has some experience with that. And he gives us this choice. Do you you want to be calm? Do you want to be quiet? Do you want to be content in your spiritual journey? Or or do you want to be an anxious, selfish, fussy crybaby? That's the question that David throws down in verse 2 right here. It's your choice. And so I I would have to say, and I, I have to look at it myself, is you ask yourself the question, are you often worried? Are you often stressed out about things? Do you do you lack a calmness in your life? Do you, do you find yourself sometimes lacking or not feeling like you're content with things? And you've got to ask your question, yourself the question, is, are there areas where pride might be getting in the way and preventing me from experiencing the calm and quiet and contentedness that David is talking about here? See, David opened up his spiritual journey to us in the psalm. He, he himself has already moved along this path. He has himself become a weaned person and, and to a place of spiritual maturity. He's moved from the anxiety to the contentment that he's now reporting. That's verse 2. Verse 3, we get to that. So the question is, how do you, how do you attain a humility like that? And, and if we look at verse 3, David says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. What does it mean to put your hope in the Lord? In this case, I, I, think, I think it means that David's perspective has changed. His perspective has gone from thinking about his own journey in verses 1 and 2. It's, it's very personal prayer between him and God. God, my, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not lifted up. I, I'm like this weaned child, one who is calm and quiet. And I think he reflects on that, and he sees his own journey, and so he moves his perspective from um, looking at his, his, himself and, and the distance that he's traveled in his spiritual journey, and now he's realized all of the, all of the path that he has traveled to get there. And his perspective changes from himself, and it moves outward. He says, Israel, or the people of God, place your hope in the Lord. See, he's moved from thinking about his own journey to having a servant's heart, having a a servant mindset, thinking about sharing his journey with other people so that they too can learn from him. He, He is learning now to serve other people instead of just thinking about himself. You know, we look at Jesus. I mean, he's the model servant for us. He, he's the one who came to be the servant of all. He said, I came not to serve, or I, he came to serve, not to be served. Words of Jesus. He, he came to give his life away for others. He, he gave his life away so that we might 
be saved. And as I was thinking about this psalm and what it might mean for us in, in our journeys, um, the disciples, Jesus' disciples came to mind. Because when we look at their story given to us in the Gospels and in the remainder of the New Testament, we learn a lot from them. We see the struggle that, that they went through when, when they were traveling with Jesus, and, and we saw their earthly ambition get in the way. We saw how they jockeyed back and forth with one another uh, to, for position and for rank and for power and prestige. Their, their pride got in the way of them proceeding down the journey with, with Christ. They wanted places of importance. They, they didn't really understand Jesus' message. They, they kind of had blinders on to the totality of what Jesus was there to do. Jesus was constantly serving other people, and, and they were involved in that. But, but they had these blinders on, and they, they were still in it for themselves at some level. They, they, there was something in their spirit that rebelled against fully jumping in, fully following down the straight and narrow path of Jesus, fully committing to choosing the way of discipleship and, and servanthood. They, they just had a little trouble with the whole pick up your cross and carry it thing. And uh, so I was reading about the disciples this week, and my very favorite story of, one of my favorite stories about the disciples, if you, if you have your Bibles open, we're going to flip over to the New Testament, uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, uh, verse 30. There's a little story in here that I just think illustrates what we're talking about here. It's the second of three passion predictions in Mark, and all three of the passion predictions in Mark have the same exact structure. Jesus tells the disciples what's going to happen. The disciples don't understand uh, they, they just get to a certain point. They, they only hear the bad news. They forget the good news uh, because they're so focused on the, the horrific nature of the bad news that, that they don't get it. They don't understand. And then Jesus uses that as an opportunity for teaching. So Mark chapter 9, verse 30 and following says, They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Well, the disciples stopped listening after they would kill him. It's like, you know, they put their earplugs in. They, they, they missed that part. Verse 32, But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. You get 
two pictures of the disciples in, in the verses that, that we just read there. On the one hand, the disciples are so scared of, of what might happen to them if Jesus' words actually come true, that they fail to see the, the bigger picture that, that Jesus is presenting them. I mean, their obsession with, with power and position, it really rendered them incapable of understanding what Jesus was talking about. See, because if, if what Jesus said was true, it would seriously damage their hope and their desire for greatness in the kingdom that they had imagined themselves ruling over. Their desire for power, their desire for glory kind of got in the way. They, they couldn't imagine a Messiah. The definition of a Messiah was one who was going to kick out the Romans, retake the land, and restore right worship in the temple. And so on the, the, the definition in society, in religious circles, was that when Messiah came, he would be the victorious one. So when Jesus, who had talked to them about being the Messiah, said, hey, I, I'm going to be turned over and, and they're going to kill me, that just didn't equate, it didn't compute with them that a Messiah could suffer and die. And so they got so caught up in thinking about that that they forgot the, oh, I'll be raised again on the third day part. And if you think about it, in that day, when the Romans disposed of people who claimed to be Messiah, they didn't just stop at the person at the top of the organizational chart. They went for the whole thing. The Romans had a history of, of taking the people who claimed to be Messiah and they would kill that person and they would go after every single one of their followers and dispose of them as well. And so the disciples, they hear Jesus saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be turned over and, and they're going to kill me. They're thinking, well, that's probably not going to end so well for us. And it just doesn't, it, it prevents them from understanding what Jesus is trying to say. So on the one hand, they are extremely afraid, full of fear, evidenced by their, their inability to even ask Jesus about it. They didn't even ask him any questions. It struck so much fear into them that it just paralyzed them. Then on the other hand, <laughs> there is the other hand, uh, the next part of the passage just kind of plays out like a comedy. We get this picture of Jesus traveling with his disciples, and the, the roadways in Palestine were not in phenomenal condition. Most of them were single track, you know, single file, and kind of rocky. And, and when you were traveling with a rabbi or, or with a master, the, the master would walk out front. And as a sign of respect, you wouldn't, you wouldn't walk arm in arm or, or even side by side with the master. You would be, you know, kind of single file behind him. So we have Jesus out front, and then we have, you know, the 12 disciples lined up single file behind him, just kind of walking along, and, and Jesus is out there. And, and as they're going, they're arguing. They're arguing about who is number one. Peter says, yeah, that's me. I'm number one. And they all, no, you're not number one. And, you know, I can just imagine that conversation. The, the Greek is a, paints a really neat little word picture. Not only are they walking single file, but 
you know, if you're walking single file, you kind of, you have to pass the conversation up and down the line. And so the, the Greek word picture, it's kind of like they're tossing the conversation around, like, like you'd grab a ball and you would toss it to the next person, and, and they would toss it to the next person, and then maybe they would toss it three people back. So you have this, this picture of Jesus up front, and, and the disciples kind of pushing them, you know, each other around and giving each other a hard time and, and, and bouncing around this conversation about who is number one. And, well, Jesus heard what they were saying. So when they get to their destination, Mark says, when, when they got to the house, Jesus asked them about their conversation. I can imagine the look on their face. Oh, you heard that, did you? Um, and when, you ask, when, when Jesus asks you a question, he's not really seeking any new information. When Jesus asks you a question, he, he's not really even necessarily looking for a response. When Jesus asks you a question, he's looking for an opportunity to teach. It's a discipleship moment for Jesus. So when he says, hey, what were you talking about, boys? Did you notice? Mark said it went silent. There was some level of embarrassment in the disciples that they were talking about who was going to be the greatest, and they, they, they kind of just thought, you know, I, we probably don't need to admit to that. They're afraid on one hand, and they're power-hungry on the others, and the verses are right next to each other in the Bible. So it's lesson time. Jesus sits down, he takes the te teaching position, and he says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And I imagine the disciples had that, wait, what look on their face? Like, how, do you, how can you be first and last? If you're last, how does that make you first? And so they, they don't quite understand it, and, and so Jesus teaches, teaches them about this, and I think it takes a while for us to learn that as well. But notice that Jesus doesn't, he doesn't rebuke the disciples' ambition to be the greatest. He, he doesn't disagree with their ambitious spirit. He doesn't crush their aspirations like a bug on a windshield. But he redefines it. He, he seeks to give definition. He seeks to give purpose to the disciples' desire for greatness, the disciples' ambition. So he's teaching them on that, and then, and then after the lesson, he, he gives them an object lesson as well, an opportunity to prove what they've learned. And so I, I imagine, you know, the, Mark paints the picture that Jesus is teaching the disciples, so Jesus probably sitting in, in the middle, and there's probably other people in the house, and, and Jesus takes one of the little children, and he puts it among them. This is verse 36. At the end of verse 36 in your Bible, most of them will have a period at the end of the sentence. Jesus took the child and put it among them, period. Perhaps a semicolon, which is probably the proper, proper punctuation, which means there is a long pause. Jesus takes the child, and he puts it among them. And so then the, there's, there's a pause in the text, but we read it really quickly and don't get it. Jesus takes the child, puts it among them, 
And I imagine him just kind of, you know, standing by, okay, what's going to happen here? Now, now, children in those days didn't amount to much. They didn't really have a social position. They were equated with the slaves or less than slaves. Many children didn't even make it to maturity. If you were, if you were talking to a child, it was considered meaningless conversation. So the place in society of children was really low marginalized, pushed to the edges, the least, the lost, the little, the lonely. That, the child symbolizes that. And Jesus has just taught the disciples, you've got to be last, you've got to be servant of all. And he puts the child in the middle and steps back. They obviously didn't do anything. Because the, the, next, the next sentence in verse 36, taking the child in his arms, he said to them, so Jesus takes the child, and the Greek word there literally means that Jesus took the child and put him in the crook of his arm. And he gives us these words, whoever welcomes one of the, these little children as a way of saying, when you serve people, you have to serve all people. Having a, a humble mindset, a meek mindset, being a servant of all includes serving children. It includes serving people who are pushed to the edges. And, and you boys, we just had the lesson, and I gave you an opportunity to prove that you've moved in your learning, and, and they failed the test. So, I don't know. It, it, when we look at these, this story, it, it's just kind of obvious to me that Jesus and the disciples are traveling in opposite directions. Jesus is traveling to his, his ultimate sacrifice, and the disciples, they're on a journey to their own human fantasy of royal privilege and, and glory and power and position. And the instruction that Jesus gives his disciples, it really flips the script of what the world's definition of greatness is, and it leaves the disciples all sorts of confused. Jesus' teaching, it, it comes all the way through the generations to us. And it's the same lesson it's the same question that he poses to us. And as we think about the disciples, I think that we can go back to Psalm 131 and use it kind of as a, a measuring tool. And when we measure the disciples' progress, when we make a scorecard for the disciples, you know what that means, right? It means that we're looking ourselves in the mirror at some level, because the way that the disciples behaved is oftentimes the way that we behave. And so it's a whole lot easier to look at the disciples and pick on them and, and put the red marks on their scorecard than it is to really, truly evaluate ourselves. So this morning, I just want to line up the disciples, uh, put, put them, uh, overlay them across this psalm on what it means to be humble. But I want us to think in the back of our minds, how, how do I measure up? If I were checking the boxes on this scorecard, what, what would mine look like? The disciples weren't focused on God. Yes, they were following Jesus. They get some points for that. They did good things. They did some great things. But ultimately, part of the picture that we get, at least in the Gospels, is that they were really focused on themselves. They weren't 
focused on God. And they were out of balance in every area. Their hearts, their desires were lifted up, were proud. They wanted the position. They imagined themselves as being the Messiah's right-hand group of people. They were the inner circle. They were the cabinet. They were going to be in charge. Their heart was lifted up out of balance. Their eyes were focused on themselves. Their, their, their eyes were focused on the prize that they imagined, not the prize that Jesus talked about. And their goals were out of balance. Jesus had one goal, to be the servant of all, to give his life away. And their goal, their desire, was to have a place in society, to move up some notches on the ladder of success to be elevated above people out in society. They were concerned with things that were too great and too marvelous for them. They were, in some ways, just way out over their skis on their expectations and understanding of what Jesus' mission was. The disciples, they weren't really calm and quieted. They were not content with where Jesus had placed them. They came across as a bunch of spoiled crybabies who were pushing each other out of the way for position and arguing with one another about who was the greatest. They, they weren't really fully weaned. They were immature followers of Jesus. Even after following Jesus around for years, and watching him serve other people, watching him perform miracles, watching him touch people who had leprosy, making himself unclean. They didn't fully understand what it meant for them. They, they missed, they whiffed on Jesus' mission. Jesus didn't say, don't be ambitious. He didn't diminish their aspiration for greatness. He simply wanted to provide the proper definition for it. See, true greatness is being a servant to all in the name of Jesus. What was true for the disciples is, is also true for us. If we desire spiritual greatness, if we want to be in on the mission of Jesus, then we need to desire the task of, of serving other people. And we must, we must learn to naturally choose the position of lesser importance, the position of humility. There's good news. There's great news. We get we get one picture of the disciples in the Gospels, but then we, the New Testament doesn't end at the end of John. It keeps going. And we read about, about how after Jesus went to, up to heaven and the Spirit was poured out upon them, that they were, they were filled with the Spirit and the church just exploded. They gained a boldness. They were powered by the Holy Spirit. They, they came to a point where they were 
mature, where they were weaned. And, and we look at how King David in, in this psalm, he, he moved from anxiety to being content. And, and we read about Peter, and we, and we know that, that Jesus used him as one of the rocks upon which he built his church. So that there's hope that if we find ourselves struggling on the one hand with pride and, and we and we feel like we're not weaned, and, and maybe we fall into the crybaby category, there is hope that we can move along this journey towards joy. This, these psalms of ascent are, are helping us learn to get around the obstacles in our life, and so we can move from this position of, of anxiety and, and uh, just being stressed out and, and not content to a position where we're more calmed and quieted and content. Verse 3 says, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Charles Spurgeon, he preached on this sermon probably more than once, but uh, he said, this psalm is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. I think he's right. I think he's right. It may take us a while, it may take us a long while. But, but I'm thinking in this journey towards having a more meek mindset that maybe we just ought to get started. Yes? Yes. People of God said, amen. That's the worship team to come.